one piece that gets lost is so you read a lot about money and you read a lot about time. But what we don't think about, and I think what has happened in particular with the pandemic, it has heightened the fact that it's not just money and time, but it's also attention. Are you in a leadership role trying to figure out how to convince others to change their mind? Have you ever wondered why is leading and influencing others so darn hard? Are you looking for practical answers to these two vital questions? If so, welcome to my podcast, Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. I'm your host, Denise Cooper, and I am a storyteller. I interview thought leaders and people just like you who are learning and practicing the art and expanding on the science of leadership. Listen as my guests and I talk about what it takes to be a remarkable leader in the 21st century. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode in a special series for Closing the Gap podcast. My name is Alexa Greer, and for those of you who may remember, Denise and I have recorded podcast episodes in the past where I've been the one interviewing her for a change. Now, Denise and I have worked together for the past year or so doing all kinds of project management, public relations, even some some DEI from time to time. And I feel that our relationship allows us to have an intimate conversation about some of the topics that you all ask about most frequently. Listen in and hear more. Today, we have our host, Denise Cooper, who is actually going to be sitting in the hot seat today and answering a buzzed about topic, which is how do you really discuss what you need with your boss? It's a challenging conversation to have, and it's one that many of us are getting familiar with, especially in this time of the great resignation, people either transitioning into new careers, people leaving jobs and bosses that no longer serve them to make sure that they're staying on a life path that is true to themselves. Denise, we're so excited to have you on today. Well, Denise, for those of our listeners who may be tuning in for the first time, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What is your background? What do you do? Oh, what do I do? That's such an open-ended question. I think in the end, what I do is I help executives, leaders, anybody who's influencing other people, how to think better, how to present themselves better, how to show up as a great leader, and to also improve the engagement in their workforce. You know, our goal at um, Remarkable Leadership Lessons is to help executives and HR in particular put the structures in place the policies in place, but also the behaviors in place that lead to a high-performance, inclusive workplace. Things are changing so much. And in that vein, the thing that I think leaders have the toughest time with is this idea of change and how do we keep moving forward, but also going towards something, a future that is different than where we are right now. And so as an executive coach, as a trainer, podcaster, author of my book, Remarkable Leadership Lessons, Changing Results, One Conversation at a Time. Our goal is really to help people become 1% better than they were before. And over time, taking small steps, they are able to close the gap. Thank you so much, Denise. And I always love hearing you talk about the idea of 1% better because it feels very attainable. Mm -hmm. I, I love a good baby step. And I think For those of you who don't know, I'm quite early in my career and having the opportunity to to grow in baby steps and small increments versus 
here's where I am today. Tomorrow, I want to be somewhere completely different. You know, it's just much more sustainable. And something that that you and I have talked about at length, Denise, is this idea that you've been in this world of HR, leadership, coaching, and influence for the last 20 years or so. And surely, I imagine you've had the chance to witness these boss-employee relationships where you've seen employees get exactly what it is that they actually need from their boss. Can you tell us more about what those situations have looked like? Yes. One of the things and the reasons I wrote the book was because when I was on a speaking tour, people would ask, can we hear more stories? Can we have more tips? Is there a roadmap that people can follow that will help them? And as you know, the book is made up of leaders becoming you know, better conversationalists, holding their people accountable and helping them engage more. But it's also about employees who have run into bosses who may not be as good as we would like them to be in the process here. And so I think, you know, your question of what can leaders do to be more engaging, to be better bosses, really comes down to a couple things. The first thing is, until you get the job, you don't know what the job is. And you've got to recognize that you're growing into being a leader and that you have to practice good skills of leadership from what is it that we're trying to achieve. And and when I say that as a goal or a vision, it's really about what's different. If we put this effort, we put this time, we put this energy into it, what will be different than where we are right now? And then you just add a time frame to that. So that's the visioning part. Then there's the managing resources. And and one of the things that you know you read in all the books, and, it, and but I think it's one piece that gets lost is so you read a lot about money and you read a lot about time. But what we don't think about, and I think what has happened in particular with the pandemic, it has heightened the fact that it's not just money and time, but it's also attention. We as human beings have a limited capacity to be able to focus and have attention on things. The whole myth of multitasking is just that. We can do automatic or autotomic kinds of things. So I could chew gum, I could walk, my heart rate continues. Those things don't take the same part of the brain, but you can't do two pieces of very high concentrated work. And we now know from a significant number of studies that Every time you take a break, you know, the phone buzzes, the kids run in, your boss calls you out. It takes you about 15 to 20 minutes to get back your focus so that you can continue your work. So we understand that. And so the second thing that leaders have to learn, and at every level, it's a little, you know, different. I call it every level a new devil, but it really is understanding this idea of time, money, and attention and managing those three. And then the last two pieces are, you have to understand how to follow up and how to ensure follow through. And follow up is really about making sure that the person, you know, we talk about emotional intelligence, but emotional intelligence, part of that is understanding that the other person is actually tracking with you and what their typical behavior is going to be. And in the follow up, it's being able to do that. So create systems for yourself so that you can follow it follow up on what's happening. But then the other part of it is, is ensuring follow through without feeling like or being perceived as a micromanager. Those are the four big buckets of skills that an effective leader and a leader who really has a consistent performance out of themselves and their team, when they can begin to 
work towards mastery of those four areas. And I don't know that we're ever a total master because change causes us to have to use those in very different situations. But generally, if you can do those four things, then you generally will be an exceptional leader. Right. That makes a lot of sense to me, Denise. And so if I'm understanding, it's what you're saying is that by achieving you know, some semblance of this self-mastery as a leader, I imagine it would often set that person up to be able to negotiate with others and to attain more resources or build these sort of bespoke practices that will better support their team. Am I hearing you right? Yeah. And it's, it's not always about getting more resources, but it is about prioritizing what are the things that are going to be most effective and then being able to have, at least in their mind, a sense of, am I on track? So sometimes it's actually convincing your peers, your boss, that the capacity isn't there. And we need to really look at what is the priority when it's done, when we get to that point, whatever that point is, what does it look like and what is different about it? And along the way, we might have micro or, or, or larger goals in between. So you might have a goal that's really five years out, but you have to have some milestones that let you know that you're directionally right. And so those negotiations around resources is really key. Definitely. Denise, I'm curious to, to also hear you talk about how have employees' expectations around work-life balance, the benefits that they want to get from their, their careers, how has that changed over the last two years? Well, I think it's been changing a lot longer than two years. I think it had just accelerated for the last two years. And I think a bigger and bigger population. So, you know, before we talked about Gen Z's, you know, the newest people coming into the workplace, or maybe we've talked about Gen Y, those generations that had the opportunity to live in a world that is not quite as safe as, you know, generations before them. You know, I talk about it in some of my speeches that, you know, we're now seeing in the workplace a whole generation that grew up with active shooter kinds of training in the workplace. What has that done when a child does not feel safe and can't even trust that their friends are not going to kill them? So it's those kinds of things that people are coming to the workplace with. And what it's done is it's made them realize that life is very short. We used to say, you know, when you get to be 70 and, and when you're talking to people who have, are at the end of their career and they look back and they say, what, what should I have done different? And they often say, smell the roses, go for the experience, don't accumulate things. Well, it's interesting because this is a generation that sees that life can be short and that life is really about the experience. And so they have a lower tolerance for doing just busy work or work that doesn't give them a sense of purpose because they understand and they've had to live with at a very early age that life is precious. And that from people who you think are friends or people who you who have been colleagues can in a moment take it away because we have active shooter com, you know, kinds of training in almost every school in the country. We see, you know, mass killings of people all around us, and it just makes them understand that an awareness that maybe others haven't. And so I think their tolerance for just working in in the hope of something of the future is just lower. And I don't think that's just them. I think the pandemic has really forced that on people all over. 
that life is precious. We need to be, you know, focused on what are the things that bring us joy and pleasure and work, whether we like it or not, is a big part of our identity. It is where we often, you know, maybe some people would say we tie too much of our image, our self-worth tied up in that. But work generates the quality of life. It generates your ability to take care of your family and to be a good community citizen. It generates an identity that you can tell the world that this is what's important to me. And I'm not, I don't want to put work over if you're not working, that you're not a valued person if your choice is to be a stay-at-home parent. But in that stay-at-home parent, the work you do to make sure that your family is safe and gets the, the tools, the skills, the love that they need, there is an identity to that and that we have value and worth in doing that. So it's not so much the work you get paid for, but it is the work that you have chosen to do. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I'm happy to hear <laughs> to hear your perspective on both pieces because it's not like one is more valued than the other, but what I'm hearing from you is that there's just been a, a shift in priorities almost with so much happening in the world over the last two years where people are now trying to prioritize joy, to prioritize family, to prioritize health, of course, you know, and I would say it definitely seems like in the past, those haven't always been values that businesses have held. It's profit first and then X, Y, Z. And so I'm curious to know for your listeners who have had this realization of, oh man, like this isn't working for me. This is no longer sustainable. I need to ask for what I need from my boss, from my supervisor. How do you recommend starting that process? What does that look like? I think the first thing you ought to do is get clear on what it is that you actually need. Oftentimes we look for very concrete things where what we really need is a sense of control and predictability in our life. The fact that we can do, and probably 80% of the times when I'm working with clients, what gives them that angst is not having a conversation with someone who they trust that will help them balance the need to be at work and the work they do. And then what does this other thing called my life look like? What would bring me joy in that? What would be the experiences? And the higher you are in the organization, it seems the easier it is. The first thing you say is, well, you know, what would bring me joy is if my team was doing this, if we grew the profits by this, if we brought this technology, if we changed the life of other individuals. And then when I say, but what are your personal goals? Oftentimes it's, well, I want my kids to be good, or I want my partner to be a good person, or I might want to travel. Great. When are you going to do those things? How are you going to do those things? And it really takes them to suck air and kind of step back a little bit to say, I'm not sure I know how to do that. I don't, you know, what would that look like if it actually was real? How would I know that that is real? And so it's taking them through the same process of directing or writing good goals for the business, but also saying, this is the other part of my life. And to understand that the joy that you get from the things that are not work-related are just as important. And how do you prioritize that against time, resources, dollars, costs, whatever that is, in your own attention? Yeah. 
Yeah, I feel like that's a very vulnerable question to pose. What would make you personally happy? Mm -hmm. Because Denise, I mean, I know that your clients are very hardworking people. And I guess I'm curious to know, sort of in a more broad sense, have you noticed any patterns in terms of what helps a person be able to more readily identify those types of answers within themselves? I imagine it's a very introspective process. It is. And oftentimes we don't like it because many times it's about perfectionism. It's about regret. It's about lack of experience. Some of my clients really, their identity is so wrapped up in work that the thought of not working and to really think about themselves and to prioritize themselves feels extremely selfish. And what I try to help people balance is there's a difference between selfishness and self-care. The analogy I often use is, is that we all generally have cars, particularly if you live outside of a large city, we have cars, right? If you saw that the light was coming on for your gas tank and it was telling you you were low on gas and then the oil light came on and it was telling you that, you know, you need to put some oil in it, what would you do? And immediately people will say, well, I'll take it to the mechanic. I'll take it to the gas station. I'll do those kinds of things. And I said, why do you do that? Because I'm caring for my car. Then why don't you do that to your body, to your spirit, to your own mind? How do you replenish and know that you're growing and learning? When do you know to, you know, as you age, you go from a place of just learning from the book and the experiences of others to there's a point in your life when where your value has to come is through wisdom. And that wisdom is enabling other people to see around corners that you so quickly and readily do and to be able to value that that is the contribution that you bring to it and then design your life around that. Because it's very different than when you're younger in your career or you're in a new career, where what you're trying to do is get the technical knowledge, the expertise to be able to do the analysis. Once you've achieved that, then it's about using that knowledge and that wisdom, that ability to see around corners, forecast what's happening that others can't see to the betterment of the organization, to yourself, and the people that you work around it. That break is a tough break because Rarely do we actually talk about what is it that people who are more tenured in their career bring to it? You know, we've got a culture now that says it's only about their costs. It's not about people who are tenured can bring anything else to the organization because they cost a lot. Well, what you're paying for is experience and wisdom. And what we can hope that group of individuals learn how to do is how to not be the expert, but to be the person that enables and increases productivity and engagement in the workplace. And that's generally missing in most organizations. And frankly, it's hard to find, you know, even books that talk about moving from having the expertise to the wisdom of being able to enable others. Wow. That makes a lot of sense, Denise. So what I'm what I'm hearing then is it's a combination of that tenure, but also that desire to look within and ask those hard questions. And I'm almost hearing sort of a shift in terms of how we view ourselves, looking at ourselves more holistically, as opposed to just those identities that we were talking about earlier. Because when I think about wisdom, it's a combination of all of those life experiences, not just necessarily your work in a specific career path, 
or your family life or your personal hobbies and things, you know, I, I see it as more of a culmination. Is that, has that been your experience? Yes, it is. It is a culmination of those things. And it's also a culmination of what you learn from those things. You know, the, the value of a hobby is that it frees up your brain to do deep thinking. And yet we don't have enough hobbies going on. Those areas where you can be creative and, you know, suddenly, you know, it's the benefit of the shower. And I'm, most of us have had that moment of when we're in the shower, you know, we've had a tough problem, a tough day, we get in there and then suddenly the answer pops and then you get out of the shower and you don't know what you said or what you thought or what the answer was, but that it's that taking your mind off of it and allowing the brilliance to emerge that hobbies bring. I love that. I don't think I've ever heard anybody share that about hobbies, but that has definitely been my experience. Mm -hmm. I guess my last question for you, Denise, which is thinking about this from a side of someone who's more tenured, let's flip the script. And for somebody who is newer in their role, maybe earlier in their career path, maybe they feel as though they just don't have that, that relationship and that rapport built up with their boss, who they're looking to go to, to have a conversation about getting these needs met. What does that process look like? I mean, to me, that just sounds like it could be a very vulnerable place to be. You're very exposed. And, you know, for, for some people, it could be their first time doing this. Well, you know, there's a couple of things working there. One, you're making an assumption that your boss actually knows and cares about that contents of it. And one of the things we haven't always done well is teach supervisors and boss to even care about that. I mean, that's kind of one of the newest things emerging out of this post-pandemic kind of thing where compassion is now becoming the skill, but we really haven't taught people how to be compassionate and still get productivity. So that's kind of a new thing. So I think part of it is, is you know, the first step is what I said before is that you have to get really clear on what that means to you at this particular time. What do you need? How do you learn best? You know, some people are visual learners. Some people are auditory learners. Some people are very tactile learners, those kinds of things. And your boss may not be the best person to do that. I think to, in many cases, we also need role models and to be clear about what does that look like? Because depending on where you are starting and what kind of career that you're in, there may be more pressures to produce more, work more hours than in some other careers and what you have to do. You also have to understand how to blend in and find work that's going to enable you, find a lifestyle that's going to enable you to be able to live well. We have a lot of people who are working in jobs that frankly don't give them enough money to have a living wage and to live. And so those are all things that people have to begin to think about. And when you're in those jobs, you've got to understand how to manage money, how to think about what you're spending it on and how to build, use your money to build on and build your wealth and build your lifestyle so that you're moving to the next level. And what does the next level look like? What does the next career look like? Those kinds of things. And so you've got to take a bigger ownership, I think, particularly now, and I don't know that it's age, like younger in career or older in career. I think it's probably harder for people younger in their career because they don't really have a good roadmap. And I think it's harder for people who've been tenured in their career for a while because this is a new roadmap. You know, they grew up, many of them grew up with the company 
telling them what the roadmap looked like. And now we live in a, you know, in an age where you could work as hard, you could be a top performer through no fault of your own, you could wind up losing your job. And so you've got to rethink what career means and what the importance of it and what do you need for a career. And I think do the research outside of work. Don't just depend on your boss to help you design what that looks like. Now, once you have that picture, how do you have the conversation with your boss? I think it is really about honing in on what are the things that are very important. Many bosses don't have the ability to set good priorities and to navigate and understand what resource management looks like. And you may, be, you may have a boss like that where everything is important. One of the quotes I hate that still can't be killed is this idea that we can fly the plane and build it at the same time. Well, from a mechanical point of view, from an engineering point of view, that's a recipe for the plane to fall out of the sky and crash and burn and all of us going to die. So it doesn't make sense logically in my mind that you would tell somebody that. But yet we say we have these quotes that basically say, take nothing and make something out of it. And yet we don't give the resources, the education, et cetera, to be able to do that. And so I think it is really, from an employee's point of view, important that you hold your boss accountable in a gentle way. Learn how to have that conversation with your boss on what are the things that are priorities and what are the things that have to be traded off. Not all work is A-level work. Some work is C-level work. Some, you know, and so you've got to be able to understand the difference between I have to put my best effort here, but this effort over here, just it just needs to get done. And it's not about the quality of what it gets done. It just needs to get done. And having those conversations with your boss is an important part. So if you can do those things, one, what does it look like for you so that you can articulate that to somebody? And two, being able to manage this idea of what resources are and what are priorities with your boss that will take you a long way. Thank you so much for that, Denise. This has been a great conversation and I know I got a lot out of it. I'm sure our listeners will as well. Where can people find you, Denise? How do they keep up with you? I'd like to say that they can find me almost everywhere, but anywhere. I'm obviously on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And many people find me via LinkedIn. Just look for Denise Cooper, Remarkable Leadership Lessons. That's a great place. Ultimately, you can contact me through the website, rllessons.com, and it'll be in the show notes, I'm sure. The other way is a new way that we want to engage with people easily. So we built the website so that people could pay a yearly fee, I think it's $99, and they get to talk to me about anything once a month. It'll be an open call. You can come in, you can send me emails, and I will respond to that information. And so if you're interested, just go to the website and there'll be a link for you to join that part of the business. But you can reach out and people generally do. I'm pretty open about giving you know, back to people because I think we need more people having conversations around what does it take to be clear and what does that look like? Well, thank you again, Denise. And for our listeners, definitely stay tuned. We have another episode just like this where I will be interviewing Denise Cooper around how to create a culture that prioritizes accountability. So kind of like a part two to this conversation, if you will. And Denise, as you always say. You know what I tell you all the time, folks, if you like it, share the conversation. If you don't like it, share the conversation, because I promise you it will generate a conversation that will help you and help other individuals close the gap. And that's what we're here, getting you from where you are now to where you want to be. And as you know, see ya. That's a wrap. 
And I'm Denise Cooper, and you've been listening to Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. Let me thank my good friend Ivan G. Hall for the background music. I'd like to ask you to do three things. One, if you liked it, share it with your friends. Let's build up our community. Two, subscribe so that you don't miss when a new episode drops. And lastly, if you've got a question or a comment, leave it below. I'd love to hear what you thought was good, what I could do better, and what topics you'd like to hear about. Let me thank my guests one more last time. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.